Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. You know, we talk about how do you really understand the needs of your audience and you're trying to build an audience. I say set up listening posts, you know, get as close to your customers as you can. You can do that with social media. You can do that with surveys. You could also do it with consulting. You could do it with services because you meet with, you know, your customers on a regular basis. I love having coffee meetings and figure out, you know, what are your pain points? What's keeping you up at night? So I figured I, I sort of had, I was on the pulse of what was going on and probably, you know, who knows? Hindsight is twenty twenty. Maybe that was one of the core reasons why I saw the opportunity in creating the event or creating the magazine or creating the Institute itself, because I'm like, okay, all these needs are here. I'm meeting with these people on a regular basis. Maybe we can create something that impacts more people than just, you know, one-on-one consulting opportunities. Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. My new book, Relationship Sales at Scale, is now live on Amazon Kindle, on paperback, as well as hardcover. So to tell you about the book and give you a little context, in a world of noise, competition, and skepticism, you've probably found that spamming your prospects with undifferentiated pitches, case studies, and sales collateral is a lot like yelling at a brick wall. And on the other hand, trying to go old school and completely personalize every touchpoint 100% is unrealistic and unsustainable because the few people you manage to contact might not even notice or care. And when life gets busy, your sales activity and your team's activity tends to grind to a halt. Your pipeline runs dry and stagnation, feast and famine, all these bad things, they can all happen. So what if the answer is actually combining the new school with the old? And instead of going in cold, how much faster could you grow if you could identify and open doors with the prospects who live within your circles of influence and are already primed to trust and do business with you? So this book, Relationship Sales at Scale, is the new selling philosophy for our age. Bold statement, right? But it is because it marries the timeless power of tribe-based trust with digitally enabled scale so you can open doors tastefully and convert prospects consistently, all without spamming anyone. So it's written by me, Dan Englander. I'm the CEO and founder of this company, Sales Schema. And the book's stories, strategies, and hands-on resources are grounded in thousands of outreach campaigns conducted for clients since 2014. That's among almost 90 clients to secure opportunities between our clients and hard-to-reach prospects, including the leaders of the largest companies on earth. A few things you're going to learn, you're going to learn how to balance personalization and scale to keep your pipeline full and achieve reliable and predictable growth. You're going to learn how to condense five years of networking into a single week-long campaign so you can batch up warm referrals into specific ideal accounts. You're going to learn how to de-risk conversations. That's the, the emphasis for this with highly skeptical prospects by leveraging strong personal commonalities instead of boring publicly available information like, hey, I saw you tweeted about this thing last week. That doesn't work. And you're going to be able to leverage dozens of actual copy examples, campaign strategies, and online resources so you can launch and close deals in a matter of weeks. So Relationship Sales to Scale will reshape the way you think about sales and business development, whether you are an owner, a dedicated salesperson, or in any growth-focused role. 
This book is a fit for the owners and salespeople in professional service companies and other B2B service and or software areas, assuming you're going after high lifetime value. So this is not for small and medium-sized businesses. So with that said, if you would like to learn more and pick up the book on Kindle or paperback or hardcover, and eventually we'll have it out in audio before too long, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash rsas. Again, that's saleschema.com slash rsas. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you had a very relaxing Thanksgiving. So this week, the bad news is we do not have a fresh episode because I was out for a while because I took my honeymoon, actually, to uh, Germany and Budapest, which was great. It was really great to recharge, and it was an amazing experience. Um, But instead of a new episode, I think sometimes it's great to revisit old content, get new ideas, and kind of go deeper instead of wider. And in that effort, uh, we have a really useful episode for you today. It's one of our greatest hits, and that's with none other than Joe Polizzi. Uh, So if you're looking to think about your content marketing strategy at your agency, either for yourselves or your clients, um, there's nobody that can speak to this better than Joe can. The interview was from December of last year, and a few things that we covered included destructing what it takes to run an agency and exploring more diversified ways to solve problems with new technology. We talked about goal setting and what it took for Joe to build an agency that was eventually sold for, I believe, something like 15 or $20 million. And we talked about Joe's path, which involved um, diversifying an offering while continuing to be a leading expert in a specific niche. So I think this is really great uh, to revisit. Without further ado, please give it up for Joe Polizzi. Joe, thanks for coming on the show. Dan, my pleasure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we were just talking. I, I had the pleasure of, of hearing one of your talks recently at the Build a Better Agency Summit this summer, and it really kind of like rethought my business. And I think most of the people in the room is really, really useful. And especially just all the options that are out there for a service business and all the different ways you can take it. And it was, there were some things that were revolutionary and there were some things that were kind of validating things I was, ways I was already heading. So it was just a great talk all around. There's so much to dig into. First, I'd love to give you the floor. And for those that don't know you, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your background, how you came to founding Content Marketing Institute and where you've gone since then. Sure. Happy to. Uh, First, happy to be on 20 plus years in publishing, got my start at a business-to-business publishing company and fell into this practice that we now call content marketing. So I'm, I'm so blessed for that time in 2000 and 2001 and decided to start my own thing in 2007, created Content Marketing Institute and basically focused on helping enterprise marketers figure out this mess of uh, creating content, building audiences and organizations, launched Content Marketing World, which is still the largest physical event for content marketing. And you know, my wife and I sold the business in 2016. I did a little semi-retirement, uh, wrote a novel called The Will to Die. And then when COVID-19 hit, I wasn't planning on starting another business, but here I am. I started a new business called The Tilt, which instead of focusing on enterprise marketers, we focus on content creators. So owners, small businesses, trying to build you know, sustainable financial uh, organizations. So we just went the other direction with that. And I got you know, deep down the rabbit hole with creator coins and social tokens and everything else. So I'm, you know, I'm just in it to, these days just to help the entrepreneur you know, figure out this business and figure out the business model of content. 
Yeah, that, that's really great. And there's, there's lots of cover there. I remember one thing that jumped out at me from the beginning of your talk is that you actually started with, with a service business and developing content yep. for clients. Can you talk a little bit about that and just kind of how, how you started that business and what that Yeah, I mean, out? so yeah. left my this executive job that I had at, at Penton Media at the time. So this is 2007. And I was thinking about launching a product, but you know, it takes a lot of time. It was a, it was a, a digital product. It was going to be a content marketing matching service. And I said, I need to start to find money somewhere. So I started in the services, started doing a lot of consulting. So that's how I got my start. And I basically worked with media companies as well as product and service organizations on helping them figure out their content marketing. So did a lot of consulting, worked with a lot of consultants as well and partnered. And uh, we really focused on the strategic side of the consulting practice and really did that until you know, 2009, 2010, until we built this thing called Content Marketing Institute. And then we took that consulting operation, which I was doing, and I did not love the consulting practice. And then uh, Robert Rose took that over, who's still my colleague on this old marketing podcast. So we still work with each other, but he oversaw the consulting side. So it was great. We had just a, the defined person overseeing the service side business. And then we started to launch events and sponsorship packages and paid subscriptions and online training and everything else on the uh, on the CMI side. Yeah. To, to dig into that a little bit, what was it that you didn't necessarily love about the service business and what, what inspired you to go to a different direction, diversify income and all that, all those things? Well, I mean, I have a couple different things. I, the one thing I didn't like is we would put a lot of time and effort into a strategy that I really believed in and sometimes they would never implement it. And that, that was kind of the frustration. And you get that, right? It happens. You make recommendations. They don't go ahead and implement it. But basically, from the business model standpoint, you know, it's time for dollars. And what we were trying to build at CMI, what I was trying to build as an entrepreneur is how to set a lot, but how do you make money while you sleep? How do you create assets as parts of the, our part of the business that we could scale and that would be ultimately more valuable? And as you know, by this, the speech that I gave, my wife and I always had the idea that we would exit the business. So even in 2007, when we started what became Content Marketing Institute, I had my little goal. It was a note that said, you know, we would sell the business in 2015 for at least $15 million. And I had that goal and I read that goal every day, made sure we do those things. And if the majority of the business as we started out was just consulting services and there was no way we were going to get to that $15 million goal if we were just focused on consulting. Or you know how big the bit, I mean, we'd have to be $15, $20, 30000000 million business to get the kind of valuation that we, would, we wanted as part of an exit. So that's when you know, we started to think, okay, we've got to create different buckets here and different revenue drivers. So I really worked hard for the next three or four years to diversify the different revenue options that we had so that we had five, six, seven different ways we were driving revenue. And then consulting became probably the smallest part of our little bucket. So by 2015, we did almost $10 million in revenue. And I think consulting was probably a half million dollar business. So we just kept at that level. We never tried to grow it. It was just a, it was just a very small part. So it went from basically 100% to less than 10%. Yeah, and I really want to want to get into that and the the diversification. First, one thing that, that you said during the talk and now that's that's super interesting is you know the repeating of this goal, this mantra. What did that do for you? Like, how do you think that that helped you achieve that goal? Like, how did that play out? 
Sure. I mean, I'm a goal setting person. So I was big into Stephen Covey's seven habits and Napoleon Hill's think and grow rich. And from that, I sort of made my daily practice of what are my goals? Uh, what's important in my life and, you know, looked at all the research. And of course it worked out for me where, you know, if you review your goal on a regular basis, first thing in the morning, before you go to sleep at night and you get focused on doing the right things toward those goals. So what I had was, you know, financial career goals, usually two or three that were very measurable, spiritual goals, uh, mental goals, family goals, philanthropic goals. And I'd write those down, generally have two under each one. And they were very fluid. Sometimes I would read them like, oh, no, no, I can't. Or, you know, with our foundation under philanthropic goals, we have the Orange Effect Foundation. We're like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense anymore. Let's change that one. But I always tried to have a number with those goals and review them. And it helps because then if you review your goals first thing in the morning, you're not necessarily going to go down the email rabbit hole or get sucked into Twitter or TikTok or something like that. You're really going to be focused. It's like, so when I read that goal every morning, I'd be like, oh man. So this is 2007, 2008. We're losing money. Not even doing revenue of $100,000. And I'm like, we're going to sell the business for $15 million by 2015. I'm like, I got to get going. I got things to do. And there was a specific reason for 2015. I wanted to make sure I had time available in my schedule for when my kids were in high school. So I didn't miss their entire childhood as we were going. And then the $15 million was a specific number because we wanted $10 million after taxes. So that we didn't have any, so we, we knew if we had $10 million after taxes, we'd have everything taken care of. The family would get taken care of. Our parents would get taken care of. We're all set and good to go. So that was a, a very deliberate choice in the number, not just a random number. So I'm a big believer. I still do it today. Review the goals all the time. And it sort of gives you the North Star as you, as you go about your day. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I've always sort of had this conflict in my head over getting committed to a financial goal versus doing what I think a lot of gurus and stuff say to do, which is to take that indirect route. Like if you want the financial goal, you got to swing at this other thing over here, which might be something like happy clients, happy employees, et cetera. Sure. How do you think about that, if that makes sense? Absolutely. If you set the goal, what are the daily things that have to happen? It's not a daily thing. It's not like, what are all the things I'm going to do in my day? That's a separate list. What I want is the big picture because I've got a visual. I'm the strategic guy. So as the owner of the company, you've got to figure out where you're going. So I want to know, like, so so as an employee in the business, my wife, I have to tell my wife, this is what we're doing so that we can hit that goal by 2015, 2016. So you start to make some strategic decisions. Would we have purchased, let's see, in 2012, 2013, would we have purchased an awards program or in 2014, would we have purchased the West Coast technology event if I didn't have that goal set? I don't know if we would have because I knew that those things would help us get to the valuation to sell in a certain amount of time. Now, of course, you're going to focus on customer service. And of course, you want to treat your employees the best that you possibly can and have them be part of the team. But I think that's a separate thing than what we're talking about. Hopefully, if you do this right, you set those goals and you have them written. And then if you want to, you set down the daily things you need to get done that are going to help you that day to get closer to that big overall goal. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And kind of zooming back to this, this junction point, you know, you're leaving a service business, developing a CMI. I guess one question I have is how important do you think it was to start with that service business in order to build all these other products and get a higher valuation? Do you think that was kind of like a launch pad? Or if you could go back and do it again, do you think you would have done it differently? Well, first of all, it was, it was out of necessity because I 
wasn't uh, well known enough to get speaking revenue. I just launched my first book or published my first book. You're not getting any revenues from that. That's just to help your speaking and help everything else. So what made the most sense? I was coming out of an executive publishing position. I had some good referral opportunities and went in there and they said, Joe, do you do consulting? And I said, absolutely. So we're like, okay, well, we're going to build this practice uh, because I've got to put food on the table. That said, I liked it as a start because I really started to understand the pain points and the needs of what ultimately became our core audience, people that were dealing with complex content issues inside the organization. We were working with agents. So if you look at the attendance for, let's say, content marketing world, so in 2015, I think we had 4,000 attendees. 20% of those attendees were people that ran agencies. You know, 50% of those people were people that dealt with internal content issues for large enterprises. Those were, that's who I was doing consulting for. You know, we talk about how do you really understand the needs of your audience and you're trying to build an audience. I say set up listening posts, you know, get as close to your customers as you can. You can do that with social media. You can do that with surveys. You could also do it with consulting. You could do it with services because you meet with, you know, your customers on a regular basis. I love having coffee meetings and figure out, you know, what are your pain points? What's keeping you up at night? So I figured I, I sort of had, I was on the pulse of what was going on. And probably, you know, who knows? Hindsight is twenty twenty. Maybe that was one of the core reasons why I saw the opportunity in creating the event or creating the magazine or creating the Institute itself, because I'm like, okay, all these needs are here. I'm meeting with these people on a regular basis. Maybe we can create something that impacts more people than just, you know, one-on-one consulting opportunities. As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, how to take charge of your agency's future revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30-minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. So there's kind of like two different forces pulling at at our audience. You know, if we're talking about agency owners and service business owners, one is the idea that, that you talk a lot about diversification. You know, if you're adding products, uh, events, et cetera, you can get six to 10x or more multiple versus like a one to three X on a service business. On the other hand, there's a, we, there's a huge, a huge amount of influence to stay the course, get really good at something, be that crafts craftsman or craftswoman who's baking bread or, you know, being a carpenter, building great websites. So I guess my question is like, what do you say to the latter group? Uh, Why add more stuff? No, it's, it's a good point. So I'm all about being focused And figuring out, okay, who is my audience? How am I going to deliver this amazing product? And so you have to ask yourself to that particular audience, can you be the leading service provider in your industry? Fantastic. Hopefully you're that focused and you're going to that direction, but you're already doing 
the majority of the work in building that audience. That's the same thing we're trying to do in building an audience. And we know if we want to get the right valuation or sell or exit or whatever the case is, we want more revenue opportunities from one core audience. So you're probably already marketing today to that audience through a blog, through a podcast, through whatever. And you're saying, okay, from that blog or podcast or YouTube series that you're only going to have one revenue option, just services, it seems like you could be so much more and you could do so much more. And by the way, you protect yourself in the business because who knows if you just have one outlet. So, you know, you mentioned if you look at somebody, a company like an Amazon, Amazon has dozens of different ways that they make money. If one thing does really well and one thing does really poorly, it doesn't impact the overall business because there's a lot of different things coming on. So what I'm, I guess what I'm asking service companies to, to look at is, look, you already need to market this way, build a loyal audience, and you're selling one thing. What if you just said, okay, we're going to do the same exact thing. We're still going to be the best for this audience. We're sharing this content out to market to them anyways. We can deliver that service, but we could also do an amazing event. We could also sell online training and subscriptions and give away our expertise in different ways and monetize it in different ways than just that engagement with the client. So I think that then, you know, as we talked about in the speech, the valuations for service companies are tough. Very, they're on the lower end compared to if you're looking at selling an event, you could sell an event for eight, nine, 10 times earnings. So it's much different than you could sell a service company for. Same for, for print subscription or for subscriptions. That could be a six, seven, or eight time. So you're all you're doing is you're just creating more value. So it doesn't mean you have to sell necessarily, but now you've got all these options that you could say, wow, our our company was valued at uh, $2 million or $3 million, but now it's valued at $10 million. We're still doing the same thing. We're still focusing on the same audience. We still have amazing services, but we're offering those services in multiple different ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm right, right with you. And I think that you know, at Sales Schema, we've been a service business since day one, kind of focusing on, on doing lead generation for agencies and, and other like professional yeah. service companies. And then since then, we've added products, we've added uh, courses, we're, we're working on a data product now. And I do think that's that's going to be the future of the company and that's where the growth is. I think a challenge for us has been, and this probably is, is like a lot of people, and I didn't, I didn't make up this quote, I don't know who first said it, but it's something like, the cheaper your product is, the more it costs to market it, right? Um, so for, I guess my question is, do you agree with that? And if so, uh, how, do you, how do you approach that first diversified product, the next thing after your service? Yeah, I don't know about the, the quote necessarily. I think that the one thing that I get a lot of questions from consulting organizations is they don't want to give away their secret sauce necessarily because they think it cheapens. Well, they think that people will then take that information and not hire them. They're giving this all away for free. And then how do they, you know, how do they monetize themselves? And what I always say is, is if somebody's going to take, let's say that you're your secret sauce and you're going to talk about it on a podcast. Well, if somebody's going to take that information and use it themselves, you don't want that. That's not the kind of person you want as a client. You want somebody that says, wow, that person is amazing. They totally get me. I don't want to do it myself. I'm going to go hire them. So that's that. Now, the way that I would approach kind of the next thing. So let's say that you've got your, your service, you're an agency. What is the next thing that makes sense? Now, you've got a lot to choose from. First thing you do, you want to make sure you're building a loyal audience. You need to do that. So if you are, let's say you're going out and just getting your clients through referrals and through advertising or whatever the case is, you need to take the next step and build a loyal audience. So you have to figure out, okay, who is that audience that we're trying to target very specifically? What's that 
secret sauce you bring to the table? What's your, we call it a content tilt. What's that area of differentiation that you could break through all the clutter? And then where are you going to build your, your content home, your story home? So that would be, it's going to be a podcast. It's going to be a YouTube series. It's going to be a Twitch stream. It's going to be an email newsletter, whatever. It doesn't matter. You find something and then you have to start building your audience. Now that will absolutely help your services business, but you have to get to what we would call a minimum viable audience in order to monetize in other ways. So for us, I'll give you an example. So we launched the Tilt. The Tilt is an email newsletter and our minimum viable audience for the Tilt, what I believe the number is in order to monetize in multiple ways is 10,000 email subscribers. So I need to get to 10,000. Once we get to 10,000, then we can monetize in a bunch of different ways. And then you have to see what makes the most sense. Low-hanging fruit is, oh, I'm going to find a partner to sponsor my podcast, right? I'm going to find a partner to sponsor my email newsletter. So you're just talking advertising sponsorship. Then you might say, hmm, like you're talking about dance, like, oh, maybe we'll create an online training product. That makes the most sense. We're going to take all what we already teach our customers and we're going to package it together so that we have a self-service model. Great. You can do something like that. So that might be something that you would consider. Or you might say, oh my gosh, like there's nobody that has an in-person event or a conference component to this particular audience. So maybe there's a larger one, but you could just say, oh, we're focusing on this audience better than anyone else. Let's do this event. That's what we ended up doing with Content Marketing World. Nobody had an event for content marketing professionals. We like, oh my gosh, there's a big opportunity here. Maybe we should launch an event. And initially, we only thought it would be for 100, 150 people to come to Cleveland, Ohio in 2011. We had 660 people come that first year and then 1,000 the next year and 1,700 the next year. So these are how these things start. But you need to know once you build that loyal audience, which is first and foremost, then you can look at all the different options around it. Yeah, that's that's really great. And I couldn't agree more. With the, that loyal audience side of things, to kind of dig into that a little bit, I think that's where um, a lot of people get into hand-wringing, you know, hemming and hawing mode. For example, with, with content marketing, that can apply to so many different businesses now. But is that how you thought of it back then? Like, how did you go about lining up what type of content marketers you wanted to go after in those early days as you were developing these diversified products? Yeah. I mean, so it goes back to the service business, like who ended up being our client. And what we found out was that the people buying our service were the champion in marketing organizations. They didn't really have a content title, but they ended up being content marketers. Content marketers wasn't a thing in 2007 when I started consulting. We we sort of said, oh, the content marketing is the thing. So we started to go after those people and really define those. So that's where you know, they sort of came to us when you look at the opportunity, what's the problem that you're solving from a service side? What's the problem that you're solving from the information side? You're basically solving the same problems when you're doing with services, when you're doing with information. Who is that core audience? What I want to do is go as niche as I possibly can. And a lot of, a lot of uh, companies, when they're building an audience, they don't want to do that because they're like, oh, we want to go wide because we want as many opportunities as possible. Well, you'll never be the leading informational expert to a wide group of people. So what you want to do is you want to get whoever that decision maker is, whoever that audience is, you want to narrow that down and keep narrowing it down, narrowing it down until you can answer positively the question, can we be the leading informational expert in this niche? And if you said, no, that's impossible, there's no way, then go down a little bit more. So you might say, oh, our target is plant managers. And then you'll say, oh, no, okay, well, maybe it's plant managers 
that work for companies of over 10,000 people. Nope, no, no. Maybe it's plant managers that work at companies of 10,000 people that outsource products to India and China. Like, oh, I think we have something specific for those people. I think we can be the leading expert. So that's kind of where you go down the rabbit hole and figure that out. So when we when started, we did a tilt with our audience because when, when we started, it was just content marketers. Well, content marketers in a small business versus content marketers in a large enterprise is a totally different thing. So what we figured out, especially with companies like HubSpot, we ran into a lot of competition in the content marketing, inbound marketing field. HubSpot had a lot more money than we did, and they were going to small businesses. And we said, we can't be the leading expert for all of content marketing. We can't be the leading expert for content marketing for small businesses. But can we be the leading expert for content marketing for large enterprises? We're like, yeah, I think we can. If we deliver consistently over a long period of time, we can do that. And that's what ended up happening. So in 2011, 2012, we made the further shift for just instead of content marketing professionals, content marketing professionals in large enterprises. And that made all the difference for us. Yeah, that, that's that's really useful. A really useful case study, I think. To, to sort of like selfishly grill you about this, because we're, we're in the middle of this uh, exact challenge at Sales Schema. What, what, I've, sure. what I've seen is that when somebody wants some stuff done for them, it's really hard to sell them information and and vice versa, right? So I'd love to hear like when you were developing these informational products or events versus kind of segueing from the service, how did you think about segmenting audiences? Were you selling information to one audience and services to another? How did, how did you kind of deal with that issue? Yeah, it was, first of all, I just had to look at the data and who was ended up buying what. When we first started and said, all right, when we launched, let's say our training product, we were launching the training product. We're trying to figure out, okay, is this training product for people that do come to our event? Are they for ones that don't come to the event? We figured that these were people on limited budget. They couldn't travel and they wanted this on-demand self-service training because they didn't want to spend, let's say, $2,000 or $3,000 to end up paying to go to the event and then all the travel associated with it. So yeah, so we were like, okay, we've got this person they're with an enterprise. So let's say a company of more than 10,000 employees, they have a training budget. Good. That's that audience for content marketing world. We feel really good about that. Then the online training, we're like, okay, that's that different audience over there. When we launched the magazine, Chief Content Officer, that was a very different purpose. We were just trying to break even with that publication because our goal with the magazine was to get that into the hands of chief marketing officers. So a totally different audience because we wanted that magazine to educate chief marketing officers for them to give their content marketers below them the permission to do all the things that we were doing, all the education to come to the events. So we wanted to, it was almost like ground cover that we were providing for the, our audience of content marketers because we knew that their biggest challenge was they couldn't get executive buy-in. So what do we do? So we went to a separate audience series. So we were very deliberate about looking at strategic, about looking at those different audiences. So we broke them up and, you know, you call them buyer personas or avatars. And we had those and we said, okay, here's each initiative. Here's LinkedIn. Here's Twitter. Here's our email newsletter. Right, here's the event. Here's online training. Here's the magazine. Here's the mission statement. Here's why each one exists. Here's our business goals for each one. And here's the target audience for each one. And we looked at that as an editorial team all the time. Yeah, that, that's really cool. And one thing that I, I keep thinking of is the, the flywheel effect, right? Do you believe in that dynamic? And I guess another way to think about that is like, do you think there was a point at which all these different things started like working together and there was this like 
surround sound effect where, you know, one plus one equals three or four now. Yeah, there is. Although I like to think a little bit more strategically about it. So let's go to go to 2009. So 2009, I had the strategy. I'm like, okay, we're doing all the service business. And I remember I wrote on a cocktail napkin because I was desperate and drinking at the time. So I wrote on a cocktail napkin. I'm like, okay, here's uh, here's the idea. The idea is Content Marketing Institute. What does that mean? Okay, we want to be the leading provider digitally. So we want an online destination. That was the dot-com. We wanted the, to be the leading print publication in the industry. That was Chief Content Officer. And then we wanted the leading in-person event experience. And that was Content Marketing World. Well, can't launch all those at the same time. But there is a sort of logic that makes sense. So on May, in May of 2020, we launched the dot-com. So contentmarketinginstitute.com with the email newsletter and the blog and everything worked together to build that audience there. And then we had it in planning, but we didn't want to launch it right away because you, you got to focus on what you're doing at that particular time. Make that one product great. Work out all the bugs. It takes about six months to do those things. And then we're like, okay, then we'll launch the next phase. That's the magazine that launched in January 2011. And then in September of 2011, we launched the event. So you could see, and then about every nine to 12 months, we would launch a new product. And then by 2013, we launched the podcast. And then uh, 2014, I think we launched the training. So there is a roadmap. So I believe that, yes, when all these things start working together, you feel the momentum, you're very excited, you want to do all the things, but you need to look at that roadmap on a regular basis, just like you see now, like with all the non-fungible tokens going on and they all say, here's the roadmap. They don't say next week, we're launching seven things. Yeah, They say we're launching this and then this and then this and then this. And of course, that's your strategy and you can modify it as you go, but you have to make sure you work out the, out the bugs because you're not going to get it right, right off the bat. Like I'm sure with, I don't know about your training, but with our training, we didn't get it right. The first thing we're like, oh no, we got to tweak it. We got, we did our, you know, minimum viable product. We got some really good feedback, went in, tweaked it, tweaked it, tweaked it. And then by the next iteration of it, we felt really, really good about it. Same thing with the magazine. First issue is okay. It's like a proof of concept issue. Second one, okay, getting better. Third, feeling good about the nine month mark. So that's where I would get, I would do. So if you are thinking about this type of a model and you built your audience, I would start to say, okay, what makes sense with what we're good at, with what they have the resources for, with what we can generate revenue from? Is there a sponsor base out there? Whatever the case is, and then build that roadmap and write it, you know, scratch it down on a piece of paper, see how it feels, uh, meet with your team, meet with the executive team. How does this feel? And then you start with one thing. Yeah, I really like that. So it's like you're you're actually putting enough time and energy into each product to make sure it sticks, as opposed to just throwing throwing new things at the wall. Uh, at all times. And I think like, if we look back at your journey, it's easy from an outside perspective to be like, oh, these guys just threw up a bunch of products, but it's really like you were going year by year ish and making sure each one works. So that's well, absolutely. You know, what's interesting is the same thing goes for starting content projects. So if you see, uh, I don't know if I shared it in the presentation, but there's a lot of really horrible examples out there. People that say, oh, we're into content marketing. We're going to build the audience. We're going to do everything. We launched podcast, video, email newsletter, Twitch stream, Facebook group, all at the same time. You know what happens? Fails. Can't do it. You can't be great at all these things at one time. And that's why if you look at how great media companies are built, they just start with one thing. Like New York New York Times just was a newspaper for a long time. Now they're a fully diversified company, but they just start with one thing. Huffington Post just started with one blog to one audience. Now they're like 500 blogs. 
Well, they didn't launch all those at one time. They said, okay, well, one, and they were just one for a year. And then they launched their second one. So it's very, very strategic. And then as you get better at it, you understand your audience is better, then you can really, you know, yeah. put the gasoline in, start the fire, get things yeah. moving. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And to kind of bring things to content marketing and to what you're doing now at the tilt. Can you talk about that? Like, wh- how was content marketing different? You know, when you first started in 2007, what's changed now, and what's what's brought you to to starting um, the tilt at this point? Well, I mean, content marketing was everything was about education at the time, so it was a great moment, and that's why anybody listening to this, you know, we just talked about NFTs and creator coins and things like that. There's so much education needed. There's great opportunities for all types of informational products in there. So that's where we were at content marketing. So there was no magazine. There was no regular blog series. There was no podcast. So that's where if you can figure out what maybe there's a new category that you're focusing on, or maybe there's, you know, if it's AI for your audience or something that new that they need education on, that that's an opportunity. So I would look at those and I always look at those with everything we're doing. Okay. So why that now the tilt, why are we focusing on entrepreneurs and not enterprise marketers? And a lot of this, you know, COVID-19 is related. A lot of people lost their jobs or they quit their jobs or they're working from home and they're like, I want to do something different. I want to create content. Can I build an audience? Can I monetize this? Can I work from home and do this whole thing? So we saw an opportunity of about a million plus people start something new and have no idea what they're doing. So that was the impetus for starting the tilt because as I um, I started to get people pinging me about my book from 2015, Content Inc. And they were asking me, and Content Inc. is basically for entrepreneurs, how they can start a content business. And they were pinging me, does this model still work? And do the case studies still relevant and whatever? And I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? This was in uh, beginning of 2020. So right after the lockdown, and I'm like, okay, there's something going on. We've had an acceleration in this area of entrepreneurship around this content first business model. So I saw that opportunity. I'm like, okay, well, if we're going to do this, let's go the whole way. We'll build the business. And then we're starting it the way that we just talked about. The Tilt launched in April of this year, 2021. And we just started just launching an email newsletter. Our goal for the first nine months is just to send out this amazing email newsletter experience twice a week. It's, it's a long email. It's about 1,500, 1,700 word email. And we want it to be all encompassing what's going on, how, how we can help content creators become content entrepreneurs. And we're just delivering that. And when we get to 10,000, which we're really close right now to get our, our minimum viable audience, then we'll start. We'll start with the training. So that's our next thing. We're going to do online training. And then 2022, if things work out, we should launch some, some more things at that time. So it's, it's going to be exciting. But same thing. Where's the opportunity that you can answer informational challenges better than anyone else? Or maybe nobody's doing it. And I'm like, oh my God, nobody, everybody's talking about the creator economy, but nobody says, here's a business model. Well, let's go out there and be the ones that say, here's a business model. Yeah, that, that's really great. And I think you make such a good point where we have this whole swath of the economy, you know, jumping online and considering entrepreneurship. And it's almost like if you know a little bit about something and you have something to teach, you're almost like doing a disservice by not putting it out there because what's going to happen is all these people that are quitting their jobs are going to go online and they're going to get sucked into these these schemes with unethical actors, you know, yeah. get rich quick stuff. So if you, anybody just avoiding that, just trying to put information out ethically is is going to give so many people a leg up and especially you you know with with your your background and experience. Well, you know? and to your point, I cannot stand the whole get rich quick stuff. 
because with the model we're talking about takes a lot of time as we talked about this whole model of let's say moving your services business to you know multiple revenue opportunities and higher valuation it takes three to five years to make that transformation just like if somebody was to say joe i want to stay at home and create an online business and and do it through let's say youtube channel or a podcast i would say well prepare first nine months expect no revenue to come in you know maybe when you get to 18 months you'll get to a point where you can really start supporting yourself so that's why i mean that's the truth now could are there the one percenters that go out there and can hit it viral right away on TikTok and create something? Yes, absolutely. But those are one percenters. I don't know that model. That model is based on a lot of luck and a lot of timing and a lot of memes. But what's the model that works? It's this media one-on-one model that's been used for hundreds of years. Exactly. And I always you know, joke with my friends who have businesses that entrepreneurship is always sold as get rich quick. Like when you compare it to the Navy SEALs, the Navy SEALs don't have to pretend that it's going to be easy to get recruits, but yet they have recruits lining out the door, right? Entrepreneurship should be sold like that, I think, because it's going to be meaningful regardless. Let's talk about crypto a little bit. So (laughs) (laughs) I knew you were going to get there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm pretty green. But what what, what is Tiltcoin, and why did you create a a cryptocurrency? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I want to make sure that we keep this in line for all the audience. I won't, I won't go crazy with terms, but basically <laughs> my journey, my journey was in the middle of 20. So I've been into cryptocurrency and I got in about 2017. So I started with Bitcoin, got into Ethereum. And I, I, I was like, especially with the way the governments were spending money. And I said, oh, I like the monetary policy of Bitcoin. And then I'm like, okay, that's fine. But is there a business model here? Is there something more here? And so the middle of 2020, I found this thing that was called creator coins or social tokens or community tokens. It's basically some person or brand can have their own cryptocurrency to use as a form of a mini economy. And I'm like, huh, could that actually be a business model? Is that a new thing? Like we're, we talked about all the different revenue generation strategies, events and uh, sponsorships and paid subscriptions. And I'm like, okay, well, what about community tokens? Could this be a thing? So I started research and I said, okay, well, if we're going to launch the new business for content entrepreneurs, I better figure this thing out. So I started to do some research. We looked at platforms all over the place. We decided to go with Rally. So you can mint your own tokens yourself, which you need technologists to do that for you, which is fine. It's getting easier. Or you can go with a platform that will help you do it. We went to a platform called Rally.io that helped us mint our own coins. And basically what that happens is, is that, you know, we, we launched in March with about 90,000 coins, you know, as the creator of those coins, we got a good portion of those coins. And then we started to give those out to our community. You can do a lot of things with it. Think of it like a creating a loyalty program or a rewards program of some kind. So we created a loyalty membership program out of coins. And we said, okay, if you subscribe to the Tilt e-newsletter, you'll get $5 worth of Tilt coin. If you refer somebody else to that, you'll get another $5. So you can earn it by doing things. And then we created our Discord chat group and you can actually member uh, create a membership level or you, you could level up if you will. So let's say that if you get five tilt coin, you get a content offer, exclusive content offer every month just for you, for your group, because you have different amount of access because you have a different amount of coin. If you have 20, you are VIP status and you get you know regular chats with me whenever you want, full access to me. So it's just a little different type of membership. So here's the cool thing. You could do that. In, you could do that anyway. 
you, we're doing it on the blockchain as this new technology. Anybody could do a rewards program. The difference is, is that the coin can actually go up or go down in value depending on the community support. So more people support the community, the price goes up. Less people support and you sell, buy or sell, it goes down. So that's what I like is you've got the community that are getting involved. They're helping you market the organization. They're part of this stuff. And then because they've got Tiltcoin or community token, that can go up in value for them. It's actually a real thing. So we've got people that they got in early and when it was 34 cents, I think, on launch in, in March. And the people that bought in and 34 cents are feeling really good that now the, the price is $46 a coin. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. And by the way, you know, no securities laws are being broken here. We're not saying to invest. I'm not telling people they can get rich. I believe in the utility of it. I believe that what we're doing is you'll be able to, I think in two weeks, you'll be able to buy merchandise with Tiltcoin. You'll be able to buy training with Tiltcoin. So we're using it to form our own mini economy. But at the same time, it does tend to go up in value if more people are using that token. And so long story short, Dan, we've got a new business model here. We think it's a thing. We're still in the early stages. I don't know where it's going to go, but so far it seems to be working. Yeah, it's, it sounds really fun and exciting. I love it because it's like you're kind of taking on the power that like a publicly traded company would have, even if you're a startup. But the difference is, you know, if I go into a CVS and buy mouthwash, the amount that that's going to affect like P&G's stock price is completely different than if I was like actually, you know, interact with P&G in some way or something mm-hmm. like that. So it's the, the amount of, of leverage that the, the users actually get like with, over the companies is pretty cool with a model like this. So it's, a, and there's, yeah, there's, it's basically how do you create the utility for it? And of course, of course, we're seeing the same thing with non-fungible tokens right now. I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk's event, you know, VFriends, well, he created VFriends non-fungible tokens, which are basically 10,000 tickets to three-year tickets to his event VCon every year, which I think is coming up in May or something like that. But he, he, you can buy the NFT. It's unique to just you. He can drop you a ticket every year. He can drop you exclusive content through that digital address that you have. So it's strange. If you're not into it, I would just say if people listening to this are like, what the heck is all this that's going on? And if you're a beginner in this, I would just say at some point, just practice. Go buy, get a digital wallet. It's go, Get a MetaMask wallet put a couple dollars worth of Ethereum in there. So you have to buy cryptocurrency and then go to OpenSea and buy some cheap, stupid NFT. So you can at least just see the process of how it works. We're seeing a whole new business model for artists, musicians, content creators. I think service companies as well can be involved in this. So I think now if you start to learn uh, what's going on now, it'll be much uh, better off and ahead of the curve when in 12 to 18 months, this thing really takes off. Cause right now yeah. we're at the very, very beginning. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of like the journey of a thousand miles dynamic. Like it's, it's worth, it's worth starting on that journey. It's not going to go anywhere at this point. It's not a bubble. You know, I think that that's crazy regardless of where it ends up in a year. It's worth your attention. I think. Yeah. I mean, point. think of it this way. Was there a bubble in 2000 with the internet companies? Oh yeah, absolutely. With the stock prices in internet companies, did eBay and Amazon come out of that bubble? Yes. There is a thing here. There's something here. Uh, you know, who knows where the prices are going to go. I'm not in it for the short term. I'm in it over the long term because we're just seeing the, the whole landscape change in right. finance from centralized to decentralized. I don't know what that's going to mean. We don't have any regulations over this stuff yet, but I think it's our responsibility as entrepreneurs and business owners to find out. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I'm kind of getting towards the end of the time. I'm just just curious. Would you mind talking a little bit about your novel and what inspired that? <laughs> Absolutely. It's so. So I've I'd written six marketing books, and in 2018. So we sold in 2016. I stayed on with Content Marketing Institute till the end of 17. In 2018, I took a sabbatical year. And I'm trying to think of something that I could do that would challenge me, that would uh, sort of take me to the next level. And I did something that I didn't know I could do. And what's funny, the reason why it happened is I was having a conversation with my wife one, one day and I realized that she'd never read any of my books. And I said, why haven't you read any of my books? And she said, well, if you talk about something interesting, I'll read it. She's not a marketer. She doesn't care. She she basically only reads the reads the acknowledgments page of every every one of the books that I've written, and that's it. And she likes mysteries and thrillers. So I said, I'm going to write a mystery novel for you, honey. This is how much I love you. We're going to make this thing happen. I started very difficult. One of the most difficult things I've ever had to do was to write a novel. And in 2019, got a rough draft together, and I said, Here you go, honey. What do you think? And she said, It's pretty good. I said, really? I said, yeah, it's like, it's like good. Like, like go through the process. So I went, got an editor, went through the whole process, multiple versions, launched it out as an audio free, actually I launched it out as a free audio book. And then we published it in March of 2020. It won a couple of awards. It's called the will to die. It stars an agency. <laughs> you'll like this. It stars a marketing agency owner <laughs> who ends up having to take over his father's funeral home. Uh, as when his father passed away and there's all kinds of um, suspense and action coming from there. I loved it because the fact that how many books have you ever read that star like a thriller that stars an agency person? Nobody, nobody. So, so you'll appreciate any, if an agency person would appreciate the beginning part of it, because there's, it's a, there's a pitch meeting. Uh, So there's, it's, it's kind of interesting. So I love, so I, I knew marketing. So I put that into the book. I knew about funeral homes because I come from a funeral home family, owned a funeral home, and uh, put those two things together and created something for my wife. And, and it, it made number a couple suspense categories on Amazon for a few weeks. So we were happy. I was happy to do it. I don't know if I'm going to write another one. My plan is at some point after I get done with the tilt thing, I'll write another one. But it takes so much time. I wrote basically an hour or two in the morning, every morning for about three months to get this thing done. And um, they yeah. took everything I had. Yeah, I, I can imagine it being a lot harder than, than writing, <laughs> writing a business book. So that, mm-hmm. that's really cool. And I'd uh, love to check it out. Joe, this has been amazing. Uh, how can people uh, follow what you're up to, get in touch, all that good stuff? Uh, sure. Yeah, thank you. I'm at Joe Polizzi, P-U-L-I-Z-Z-I on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and all that. I'm probably best on Twitter if you want to contact me. And then the company is called The Tilt, thetilt.com. And uh, we'd love people to subscribe out there if you're interested in what we were talking about. This we cover the same things uh, twice a week in our newsletter, and we're you know we're trying to we're trying to help a, a million content creators become content entrepreneurs or build sustainable businesses. We got a long way to go. We just started, but uh, so that's kind of our our big mission statement, and we need all the help we can get. Awesome. We'll get that linked up. I'm really excited to see how that progresses, and hopefully, uh, get you back on before long. Thanks again, Joe. We love it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode was sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.